please take your copy of God's Word and open to Romans chapter 8. Romans, the 8th chapter. As I told you last week, I at first anticipated this would be a sermon, then I was expecting it to be a couple weeks, and then I just said, let's see how far we're going to get, because the theology contained in this one verse is beyond description. It's beyond our ability to capture in just a few moments. And if we were ever going to pull the car over and enjoy the view in God's word, this is one of those places. Romans chapter 8, let me put that in our mind for just some familiarity and context. I hope that most of you have this memorized by now. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. One of the things that I've talked about before with you, and I say tongue-in-cheek, is if I could change any one word in the Bible, I know what it would be. Full disclosure, I don't want to change any word in the Bible, but emotionally, if I could adjust one word, it would be in James chapter 1. When James says, consider it all joy, my brethren, what's the next word? When you encounter various trials, and I wish that word said, if you encounter various trials. It's when. Now, obviously, we don't want to change that text because we forfeit the blessings of it, but I understand the power and the challenge of understanding that reality. Suffering and sorrow, difficulty are a part of everyone's life. Now, there's a broad spectrum to the degree to which intensity and uh, amount and depth of difficulties land in everyone's life. No exemptions are issued for facing the problems of pain and evil, evil and suffering, even for a Christian. We might even say, especially for a Christian. Our experience with evil is generic and it's specific. It's communal and it's individual. It's global and it's personal. I don't want to be the the doomsday prophet this morning, but the question is not, will I experience difficulty and adversity? The question is, what will you do when you experience difficulty and adversity? I don't think I'm exaggerating when I would say that the bulk of, of my work as a pastor, the bulk of the elders' work as shepherds, the bulk of the leaders in any spiritual sense in our church really boils down to helping people, specifically helping people who are in adversity, in trial, and in difficulty. Helping others and giving spiritual counsel and insight is at the heart of pastoral ministry. It's our joy to do so. I'm so glad that God has called me into that ministry. And most of the quote-unquote help is really just coming alongside those who are struggling, those who are suffering, those who are in the middle of a, of a difficulty, a trial. Struggling, hurting, fretting, worrying, suffering, mourning, grieving, despairing. All of those happen in the context of living life. And it's really the, the fulcrum, the leverage of influence in a person's life and ministry. Ecclesiastes 7.13 says this, Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? 
I wonder how much time we try, we, 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 how much time we set aside to try to straighten out what God has bent. Said another way, I wonder how much time I try to get out of what God has put me into. He has purposes in suffering, purposes in difficulty, purposes in adversity that only the Christian can benefit from truly in a spiritual sense. Christianity, as you know, is not about living a life that's above and beyond difficulty, above and beyond adversity. It's only a Christian who can rightly understand and interpret and respond to that adversity that all of us face. So really the question that this verse brings up is not whether or not you and I are going to have difficulty and see what God is doing in them. The question is, how will we respond? How do we understand? How do we interpret these these bad things that happen in our lives? John Murray writes, when adversity comes into our lives, we tend to react in one of two ways. We may say it's from a source other than God. He has no power to stop it. Or we might say it's evidence of God's anger against us. God's out to get me. This text, by the way, answers whether God is out to get you or not. Murray says, either way, we are guilty of casting aspersions on the character of our Father and consequently of perverting our attitude toward him, end quote. But there's another way, not only doubting God, not only saying that these bad things come from a source other than God, trying to exonerate God from the reality of suffering in our life, quoting Thomas Boston, Murray continues, a right view of affliction uh, um, is altogether different and necessary to a Christian's life under them. That view is to be obtained only by faith, not by sense. For it is the light of the word of God alone that represents them justly, discerning them in the work of God and consequently designs becoming the divine perfections. What he's saying is, do we really understand that adversity, difficulty, trial, suffering, pain, sickness, even death, that all of those are a part of God's work in, on, through, and for a believer? That's what this verse talks about. Question we have then is how can we get that perspective? Or maybe we should say how can we regain that perspective when we've, we've had it and lost it? It's a question I ask all the time. It's a question I ask not, only, not even weekly but daily and sometimes hourly. How can we respond rightly? Sometimes I find myself saying why didn't I respond rightly? Well, Romans 8.28 is a one-verse encyclopedia. It's a survival manual for facing the inevitable difficulties, the inevitable um, adversities that await us all. And as we do that, we have to enter into the study we started last week on understanding providence. Sovereignty is God's rule over everything. Providence is a subcategory of his sovereignty, which means he works in and on and through all things. Nothing happens in God's world. Nothing happens in God's universe. Nothing happens at the molecular level. Nothing happens at the astrological, astrological level that God says, well, I didn't see that coming. He is sovereign and providential over it all. Back to our friend, Dr. Murray. Providence is that marvelous working of God by which all the events and happenings in his universe accomplish the purpose he has in mind. 
We noted last week that providence is connected to God's wisdom and God's goodness. Uh, Lamentations 3 says, He does not afflict the children of God willingly. All of this has a purpose. It has a design. He's doing things. Sometimes we see and sometimes we don't see. When we turn to Romans 8, 28, we need to look at God's providence. But understanding God's providence means we understand the verse properly. Understanding the verse properly means that we need to get the verse right. Now, getting the verse right means we have the translation correct. Now, before we get into the the text itself, I want to talk about the text itself. Let me read you some translations of Romans 8, 28. And I want to see if you hear many or any differences, okay? The New American Standard, the one that we, uh, we uh, use here as a regular part of our worship, the one I preach from. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. The New King James. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Do you hear a difference? The ESV. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. The NIV, 1985 NIV. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. There are some significant differences there. The main difference is cause and effect. The New American Standard says God causes all things to work together. The New King James says all things work together. ESV says we know that for those who love God, all things work together. So cause and effect, how do we we reconcile this? These all have different accents. How in the world do we understand which version to go with? Now... There are two issues going on here. One is a textual issue, a manuscript issue, and one is an interpretive issue or an antecedent issue. What goes with what? Now, what I need to do right now is ask you to just take a deep breath because sometimes, uh, most of the time, I hope I'm a preacher and a pastor and that's... That's just what we have to do and that's what we get to do and that's what we are are honored to do. And then other times we need to kind of become theologians and, and jump into the classroom. So I'm going to ask you to jump into the classroom for a moment because if we're going to understand this verse properly, we need to understand what it says. And if we're going to understand what it says, we need to understand why we believe one translation and the accent of that translation over another. So I'm going to do the unthinkable. We are going to talk for a moment about textual criticism. Textual criticism. It's the manuscript issue. Let's talk about the manuscript itself. Now, as you know, the Bible was translated from a series of manuscripts. These are copies of uh, books of the Bible that were brought together. There are lots of copies of the New Testament books, lots of copies. And the genius of God was to do that. Just think of this. If there had only been, if we had had Paul's original letter to the Colossians, and that was somehow kept with his handwriting, that would be worshiped. There would be some shrine. Uh, I'm sure there would be a Catholic church that enshrined it and put gold gilding around it. and it would, be, it would be honored and worshiped in and of itself. But we don't have what's called the original autographs, personal writings. We don't have any of the originals. 
Now, why don't we have the original? I mean, wouldn't it have been smart of God to say, well, here's Paul's handwriting in Galatians where he says, notice this is my handwriting. See how big letters I'm using. Why don't we have those originals? Let me just say, it is the genius of the mind of God to not give us those. Why? Because that original was copied. And then those copies were copied. And then those copies were copied. And then those copies were copied. And they were taken all over the world. So now it would be impossible to make any kind of forgery of what was said. No one can say, well, I don't know if Paul really wrote that because we don't have any evidence that that was, that anybody early on thought that Paul or John or any of the New Testament writers wrote that. God said, no, we're going to make lots of copies, put them everywhere, and then people will know that uh, it's corroboratable. You can, you can compare text to text. However, some of these copies of copies of copies of copies that have gone all over the world, some of them have very slight, let me say that clearly, very slight discrepancies between them. They don't always agree on different uh, on things. How, what happened there? Well, it's obvious. Probably some poor scribe was, was up late and he made a mistake. Then the next guy who copied his mistake perpetuated the mistake. He is typically a misspelled word or a word out of order. We understand that, but been looking at the total manuscript evidence, scholars have come up with a scheme to say, okay, how do we know which one was first? And it might interest you to know that there are two main rules to decide that. The first is which is oldest. Now, obviously, if, if this says, if A says, you know, this thing and B says this thing and B is 200 years later, then B is probably not the best reading. We need to go back to A. So you go with the older reading. Secondly, this might surprise you. Scholars go with the hardest reading. In other words, if there's two that, that, that are a little slightly different and one is more difficult to understand than the other, if you don't have any dating between the two, you always go with the harder reading. Why? Because no one would try to make something harder to understand they would try to make it easier to understand. Therefore, the harder to understand would be the earlier document. Does that make sense? That's typically the way textual critics, is what they're called, make these decisions. Now, the earliest manuscript evidence that we have of Romans 8.28 favors the way the New American Standard translates this. That there's a theos, God, that causes all things to work together. But we'll talk about this in a minute. Determining what these manuscripts of the Bible said, as I said, is a discipline called textual criticism. Now, don't think of criticism like I'm being critical of someone, I'm calling them a name. Criticism means study. You're, you're, you're getting at the, the, the right meaning, the right understanding of it. What we have is tens of thousands of copies of the original manuscripts dating from the first century to the 15th century for the New Testament. And dating from the 4th century B.C. to the 15th century A.D. for the Old Testament. Now, in these manuscripts, there are very many minor, let me say this again, minor discrepancies between some of the manuscripts. Little differences. Textual criticism is that study that says, okay, let's determine which is the better reading. Now, without boring you, I need to tell you about the three major groups that, that come with um, understanding how you get your version of the English Bible. Why is there an RSV, an ESV, a New American Standard, a New King James, a King James, uh, uh, an NIV, a New NIV? 
Why are all those so different? Most people think it's, well, this guy translated this word this, and this other guy translated this word that, and it's not that simple. It has to do with these original texts that these scholars use, these family of manuscripts that these scholars use to translate. Three main categories. So if, uh, if you're taking notes, and I'm, I mean that tongue-in-cheek, this will be on the test. First is called the Textus Receptus. You may have heard of that. The Textus Receptus was a manuscript of the Bible. It was compiled by a man named Erasmus in the early 1500s A.D. And what he did is he took the very limited... All he had was a limited number of manuscripts. He compiled them into what eventually became known as the Textus Receptus. That was his copy of those those manuscripts. And that became the basis, by the way, for the King James and the New King James. Now, I've had very many discussions with those who believe in the King James only as as the only Bible that's legitimate. There are two groups of people who, who make that argument. One who believe that it's the, it's the translation itself, it's the only valid uh, understanding of God's word, which makes things a little bit difficult because what do you tell the Chinese and, the, and those who live in Mexico or Spain? I mean, it's difficult to say that the King James English Bible is the only version of the Bible that's legitimate. That's a problem. That's usually the uneducated approach to that. The more educated approach is those who say, no, no, the Textus Receptus Organized by Erasmus in 1500. That's the only legitimate grouping together of manuscripts that God ordained who said, this is my word. Now remember, Erasmus only collected the manuscripts that he had access to in Germany. The second goes a little broader. It's called the majority text. The majority text is takes all of the manuscripts that are available today, compares the differences, and chooses the most likely correct reading based on, drum roll, the majority. It just looks at the sheer numbers and says, well, if more manuscripts agree with this, trans- this, this way that the verse reads, we're going to go with the majority. That's why it's called the majority text. They go with the widest reading the third method, and I'm going to be honest with you, the one that I, I lean toward, the one that the New American Standard is built on, which is why I use the NAS, is called the critical or the eclectic method. Now, the eclectic method involves considering internal, external evidences for determining the most likely original text based on those two evidences I told you, the hardest and the oldest readings. Uh, the NAS is, like, uh, is built on that. The New Living Translation is not the Living Bible, but the New Living Translation. Um, now, w- without getting into all, um, uh, all the versions, the, the ESV is interesting because the ESV did a couple of things. The ESV used the New Revised uh, Version, the, N- the, NR, um, um, the RSV, or the Revised Standard Version, and used that as the basis which was basically a majority text, and then it added critical or eclectic on top of that. So the ESV tried to to wed all of them together, sometimes very well, and sometimes with some confusion. Now, let me give you a footnote. If you use the King James, the New King James, the RSV, the ESV, the NASB, the QVS, whatever you use, the, that was, there is no QVS. 
any of those mainline translations, you have God's word. This study should not intimidate you from opening your Bible and believing this is what God said. And anything that's, that's got an alternate reading, all of your Bibles will give you a little footnote and you'll see that in the margin. You, you, I'm sure you've seen that over and over. Let's get a little bit more specific. Looking at the eclectic reading, because this is going to get us in Romans 8, 28. The eclectic reading, the, the critical method. One of the earliest manuscripts we have is a book. It's a papyrus codex. That's an ancient book called P46. Now, that will be on the test, P46. P46 is one of the oldest manuscripts we have. It, it uh, dates back to the second century AD. It's a book that became widely used around the ancient world. It was actually replaced um, uh, uh, the scrolls that were, that were much more difficult to deal with. I mean, you can imagine if you, if you had a scroll that you had to roll out and find something, how difficult that would be. Was well, the canon of the New Testament was gradually being formed, the different Christian writings were being copied and collected into volumes and volumes and papyra and manuscript and manuscript, and these codexes contained those collections. The oldest one we have here is P46, which contains the epistles of Paul. In the fourth century, the acceptance of the canon was, was um, widespread under the rule of Constantine. New Testament, as we know it, took on a single form. Papyrus was placed by parchment, then by paper, then by printed books. And again, P46 became the, the basis on that. Um, it's significantly earlier than the other two main codexes that were used that basically to inform the majority text uh, and the um, Textus Receptus. Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, one was held by the Vatican, one was found at Sinai, both dating to the 4th century, by the way. Um, bottom line is this, P46, that collection, was copied more than a century after Paul wrote his epistles and is nevertheless the closest we have to his original epistles. The translation that the New American Standard takes that God causes all things to work together for good is the earliest reading of this text. The textual variant is what the ESV takes. We know that for those who love God, all things work together. You can see where they didn't use that P46 is that translation. You say, why are we doing this? Why does this matter? Well, it matters a lot. Because you have a trustworthy Bible, you should know that. Secondly, if someone's Bible on this most important verse says something a little different, I want you to be informed on why it says something a little different. That's on the textual issue. On the other issue, this is kind of fun. And that's called um, antecedent theology or translation. In other words, what words go with what words? Now, if I could illustrate this, I would love to. You, um, in the Greek language, the word tells you what part of speech it is and where it fits. So word order in one sense, it's not as important. You can get the sense of it. In another sense, it is important because it puts the accent on, on things rather than, than you having to do you know, subject, verb, predicate as we do in English. The best way to illustrate this is uh, the, the famous saying, which became a book, eats, shoots, and leaves. What does that mean? 
Well, you could say there's a man who eats, and then he shoots, and then he leaves. They're all verbs, okay? Or you could say, no, there's a, there's a, a marsupial who eats, shoots, the noun, and then he gets out of there. Or you could say, no, this marsupial eats, shoots, and he eats, leaves. You can see where you can, you can, you can depending on how you evaluate those words, it could be understood in a, in a variety of ways. That's the case here with Romans 8, 28. You're, you're asking yourself, what phrase goes with what phrase? What word goes with what word? What word goes with what phrase? And I, I, I like the way the New American Standard translates this best. I, as a, as a, just for the, for the record, the New American Standard doesn't get it best or right every time. But I think here it does. The key translation, translational issue, by the way, is, is the term theos, which is God, and sunerge, which is work together. Sunerge, synergism, works together. We get that word from it. So do all things work together... Just because they do, remember Doris Day from last week? Okay, Sarah, Sarah, whatever's gonna be, it's just gonna work out. All things work together for good, or is there a causation? Does God, the theos, does that word God attach to the working of all things together for good? And I think it does. God is the one who causes them to work together for good. By the way, the English, the, the King James, none of the ones that, um, that don't use the phrase God causes, none of them deny that God's doing that. In the context of the verse, it's really easy to see that that's the implication and the intention. Leon Morris, New Testament scholar, says this. On the whole, it seems best to take he as a subject to understanding the passage of the working of God in some sense as the one in the previous verse, he that searches the hearts. God is the one who causes. So he's saying, even the context, even if you get into the manuscript issue and the antecedent issue of what goes with what, the context tells you he, the spirit of God in the, in the previous verse, is the one who's doing the working together because he's the one who's praying according to the will of God. Why all the fuss? I just want you to know why there's differences and you can trust your Bible. None of those receptus or majority or eclectic texts, which are translated into the Bibles that you're holding, none of those are gonna lead you into any theological error when considered as a whole. But it does make a difference because I've already been asked, Rick, when you're reading your, your uh, passage at the beginning of the sermon, that's not what my Bible says. Well, it's important that you know why they're translated a little differently. With all that, now let's look back at the text. We started last week, and I'm going to give you, uh, over the course of the next few weeks, seven insights for living under God's providence. Seven insights for living under God's providence. The first one we looked at very briefly last week, and we'll look at it each successive time that we study, but let me raise it to your attention again. Number one is the context of providence. The context. This is the little Greek word day, which can be translated in a lot of ways. Moreover, now, and. It's just making a contextual reference. It's connected to what came first. What came first? God is praying for us. The Spirit of God is praying for us with, with groanings too deep for words. It's connected to what he's doing. And he's praying for the will of God, praying according to the will of God. And then in verse 28, we find out that God is doing something, working all things together. Working all things together is connected to the Spirit's praying for the will of God in verse 27. It's all about the context. 
He's interceding according to the will of God. Also, the contextual reference that we made last time is in, in verse 26. We say, uh, Paul says, we do not know how to pray. And that leaves us with a gulp. We don't know something. Then we get to verse 28, and he says, we know something. We know that God is working all things together for good. So the context matters. You can't just drop into 828 and start looking around and think you're going to get everything that the Spirit of God has for you. That was number one last week. Now I want to briefly consider number two, the second insight, the celebrants of providence. Who are the people who can celebrate God's providence? And for that, we're only going to take one more word. And second word is what? We. We. Who is we? I think it's interesting that Paul is so descriptive of who the we are. Now, in order to do this, I'm not trying to be pedantic, but I want you to look at at your versions, look at your Bible, and just mark this in your mind as I accent this. Look at what Paul is doing to describe this we, these, these, these people who he's identifying with in verse 28. Verse 28. And we, you see it? Know that God causes all things to work together for good. Here's another descriptor. To those who love God. That's who the we are. Another descriptor. To those who are called according to his purpose. So in the... In the verse itself, we get two descriptors of who the we are. Verse 29. For those, now we have another. Those he foreknew. This we are people he foreknew. Also people he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So that he might be firstborn among, look at this next descriptor. Many brethren. We're talking about believers and Christians. But keep going. And these, verse 30, these brethren whom he predestined. So we, the we is uh, not only called, but predestined. He also called. We already saw that. And these whom he called, see the these there? He also justified. So now the we are the people who've been saved by grace through faith. And these, into verse 30, whom he justified, he also glorified. So the we are those who are going to go to heaven. Oh, we're not done. Verse 31, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for the we, he's us. Then who is against the we? That's us. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over, what's the next phrase says? For us all. How will he not also with him freely give Us, all things. Look at the descriptor in verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Another descriptor of the we. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who also intercedes for who? For the we, for us. By the way, you saw that the Spirit prays for you in verse 26 and 27. Jesus prays for you here in verse 34. It gets better. Verse 35. Who will separate the we? Us. 
from the love of Christ. Look at the context of Romans 8, 28. Will tribulation, will distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sore, just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered in all these things. We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved who? Us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor, things, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Who are the we in Romans 8.28? Well, it's only those who are redeemed, only those who are saved, but you see that the we encompasses so many blessings and so many benefits. Obviously, true believers, the foreknown, the predestined, the called, the justified, the glorified. I love verse 31. The ones for whom God is for. That's the we. God is for the we. God is for us. Therefore, it is only a Christian who has the intercession of the Holy Spirit, the intercession of Jesus Christ. It is only for a Christian for whom all things work together for good. It is only Christians who know what God is doing behind the scenes. We've, I said it last week, you, you, you experience a tragedy and among believers, we often say, I don't know what, how an unbeliever would do this. Have you said that or thought that? You've said, I don't, know how, I don't know what I would do if I didn't have Christ. You're right. Not only do we not know how we respond, but the next word we're gonna get to in our next study is for we know. We have an assurance because God, God in his grace, in Romans 8, 28 there's that classic illustration of a quilt. Uh, we have a quilt that Kim and I bought on our honeymoon. It's a beautiful quilt. And um, we still have it to this day. And you look at the back side of the quilt and it's just all, it's kind of a mess. It's a bunch of knots and threads and stuff. And, and we got to constantly watch that it's not being pulled out. It's a handmade quilt. If you were just to look at the back side of the quilt, you'd say, what in the world? Who would buy this? When you turn it over and you see all the beautiful design of that quilt, it makes sense. You know what God has done for the believer? Everyone sees the backside of the quilt. Everyone, unbelievers see the mess that this world can be and the threads that don't make any sense. God in Romans 8, 28 says, hey, hey, look at the other side. Look at what I'm doing. Things. You may not see all this now, but know there's another side have confidence that there's more to what your life is than what you see. And I'm doing 10,000 things more than you may ever know until you reach eternity. By the way, all of this we goes back to Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. We have peace with God because of the gospel. That's the we. If we have peace with God because of the gospel, whatever this life throws at us is at best or at worst temporary. 
Do you know, do you understand how privileged a position that we have by being a part of the we? I wanna ask you, are you a part of the we? And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Do you, are you a part of that we? Are you a believer? Are you, are you secure in Christ? Have you given your life to Jesus Christ? Is he your Lord, your master, your savior? Is he your proxy, your friend? Is he your redeemer? Is he your, your confidence, your sacrifice? Is he your best friend? Is he your best advocate at heaven's throne? Do you know Christ? Have you given your life to Christ? If you haven't, and you're not a part of the we, then you will be a part of the confused and the despairing. We say it all the time. What kind of fool would say no to, to, to God? Well, I want to beg you today to reorient your affections and your loyalties. Nothing, nothing, nothing in this world is worth eternity. Nothing in this world is worth sacrificing for if you miss the Savior. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Most important question that this text today raises is, are you a part of the we? And if you are, are you a part of the we that really enjoys being a part of the we? Would you do something this week? I did it really slowly, or really quickly, rather. I want you to go back slowly and just take Romans 8 and just maybe print it out or make a copy of it or even in your own Bible. Just underline, highlight, stop and meditate on all the things that Paul says about the we, the us. What I find very interesting is that Paul didn't say y'all or you. He said we, meaning that Paul, if anyone needed this perspective, it was the apostle Paul for whom, how would you like this? The Lord said, everywhere you go, you're gonna be beaten, stoned, and eventually you're gonna be murdered on behalf of Christ. If anyone needed to see the backside or the front side or the right side of that quilt, it was Paul. And he identifies himself with us and says, we and we know that God's doing something. Are you a part of that privileged group of people? Here's the thing. It's not a secret club. It's not a secret society. You can be a part of that group today by giving your life and submitting your life to Jesus Christ. Believing that he died for your sins, that God raised him from the dead and gives you not just life, but abundant life. For those of us who are a part of the we, hold your Bible with confidence no matter which of those versions you have, but understand, I, th- I believe that our church is mature enough to understand that there are different manuscripts that lead to the Bible you're holding without seeing that that's any problem. In fact, it's genius of God. Absolute genius, because no one could ever throw the thing out the window and say that's just one man, one text, one church's holding of that little um, uh, codex or book on which we, we base our faith. Tens of thousands of copies make this a reliable book you can live your life on. Would you pray with me? I know that we're going through this passage very slowly, but if every jot and tittle of God's word demands our attention, then it's worth it.
If you know Christ, praise God you're a part of the we. Praise God you have a copy of his word. If you don't, praise God you came today. After I pray, the prayer room will be open to my right. Uh, Ben and Becky will be over there. We'd love to talk to you about how you can give your life to Christ. Maybe you want to talk about our church, how to join our church, how to be part of the fellowship here. Whatever your need is, please come and talk to us. We would love to serve you. Father, we trust that you have, in the genius of the Holy Spirit, preserved for us your word in a reliable sense, in a precious sense. Give us greater confidence in that. Give us greater accountability because we know that this is a supernatural book. And as we plow into this verse, Lord, I pray that we are just, we who are a part of the we are overwhelmed by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.